0: So, I just wanted to introduce today's chat. Um, one thing, patrons of my podcast and this channel get monthly chats with experts in various fields. And this month's or the July chat was with Micheline White, who is the researcher who found the, she's been in the news because she found the doodles of Henry VIII in the prayer book that Catherine Parr had given him. And it made even, you know, like, news on like non-Tutor places, non-history places. It was on CNN, like all that. So I reached out to her and she graciously did a chat with our um, patrons, the patrons of the show. So I wanted to introduce Micheline White and then we're gonna hop right into the chat. If you would like to become a patron of the show for as little as a dollar an episode, a dollar a podcast episode, Um, You can do that at patreon.com slash englandcast. That's patreon.com slash englandcast. Micheline White is an associate professor in the College of Humanities and the Department of English at Carleton College. She began teaching at Carleton as an assistant professor in 1998. She completed a BA with honors in English literature at the University of Toronto in 1989 And then she moved to Japan where she taught English at a Japanese high school for a year. She received her master's in English literature from the University of Ottawa in 1992 and a PhD in English literature from Loyola University, Chicago in May of 1998. Her main field of study is English Renaissance literature. She is particularly interested in women's writing and reformation history. And she's published several recent articles on Catherine Parr. So we actually talked mostly about Catherine Parr and then got a little bit into the doodles and marginalia of, of Henry VIII. All right. I was so thrilled to welcome Micheline White and we will just get right into it. I love it. Um, thank you so much for being here. Um, like I just said, before we started recording, I, of course, found you because of all of this news you've made with Henry VIII and these doodles and it's been all over, you know, the news and everything. But you, I feel like I should have known you before because you are, are doing all this amazing research on Catherine Parr um, and you, we kind of know the same people you taught we're going to bring up, you know, perhaps. Uh, and, and so I I feel like I need to kind of go back and, and rethink my whole purpose in life because I didn't know you before and I feel very ashamed of <laughs> but But um, so I want to speak to you about Catherine Parr And her role as an image maker and her wartime propaganda, all of this with her prayer books. Um, And then we can talk about the Henry VIII uh, doodles and marginalia as well. You have a long, long history of of marginalia. Um, So can you talk to me? Let's get started. Just if you can give me a little introduction on your work and, and what your research around Catherine Parr. Yeah, so I had worked for many years on
1: other women writers, in fact, very obscure women writers. That's what I wrote my thesis on. And um, but at, at one point, in my, I was starting to work on Elizabeth Turrett, who is one of Captain Parr's Ladies in and, and she also published a prayer book. And I sort of thought that I would spend a week uh, that I was on sabbatical in the UK, that I would spend a week sort of looking at Captain Parr's songs or prayers because I thought it might have something to do with Elizabeth Turret. And um, then I went down a ten-year rabbit hole into the world of Catherine Parr. Actually, never published my work on Elizabeth turret. but um, yeah. So, so the Psalms of Prayer sort of attracted my attention immediately. Um, some other scholars had done some great work on it. So, for those people who don't know, it it's the first book that we now attribute to Catherine Parr, um, and it's a it's a collection of psalms with two prayers at the end, and um, so. Yeah, so basically I started doing a lot of different research and found things about the sources and the uses of text and then the, the gift copies of that. So that's sort of one strand. I also became interested, though, in, um, uh, in Catherine Parr's own marginalia. So there, there, she has written her signature in a couple of different books. And then there's a sermon, there's a samuel band at Suvi Castle. So that's a book that's comprised of six different books that are all bound together. So the word is samuel band. And she had written um eight maxims at the beginning of that. And they're clearly in her hand. And she's also signed the title paper book. So I did, I got interested in in her book ownership or what kind of books she owns, how she carried them around, what she wrote in them, sort of what we can know about her bookishness. Um and then, yes, my last paper, the one that was just published, is on the the gift copy of her book. Um and and now looking forward, I'm also writing. Uh, a book about uh, women, w- elite women who contributed to the what I call the production of the Book of Common Prayer, so broadly understood. Um, and so I am doing some work on her, on her under Edward, so her last book, The Lamentation of the Sinner. So I sort of, I'm interested in both when she was queen consort, but also in when she was the dowager, because I think there's a lot of work that can still be done on the kind of political impact she had when she was the dowager.
0: Sure um yeah it's so funny that those parts of her seem to get left out a lot uh you know you hear about her as the dowager and it's always with thomas seymour and what was happening with elizabeth yeah Uh yeah she's actually very productive during that time as well um yeah
1: yeah exactly
0: yeah so talk to me about psalms or prayers because you know you hear about it and it's like the the thing about it being the first book written by a woman or published under a woman's name and all this but it, it's really a, a piece of wartime propaganda, as I understand it. Can you give me the background of that?
1: Yeah, so there, her first two books sometimes even get confused. So the first thing that was published in 1544 is called the Psalms or Prayers. And that has only recently actually been attributed to Catherine Parr because her name is not on it. Then the next year, she published something called the Prayers or Meditation, Kind of the, the titles way. are very similar, so it's very easy to get them confused. And that's the book, so it's 1545, that it does have her name on the title page. Um, and that's the book that, um, uh, you know, that you often hear in the news that she was the first woman to publish a book with her name. But she had already published a book in 1544, it just didn't have her name on it. Um, so that's what I became really interested in. It's a very long book. So her second book is actually quite short, but this first one is, is very long. It's about 200 pages. And it's a translation from Latin of a book by Bishop John Fisher. We talk about that a bit more in a second. Um, So it's comprised of what are called psalms, but they're not actually biblical psalms. If your listeners know what biblical psalms are, these, these are actually kind of original prayers that are made up of verses from the psalms that have been stitched together. So there's a scholar called Susan Felds who refers to them as collage psalms, which is a really great way to think about it. So like if you take different verses from different psalms and stitch them together to make these original prayers, that's what Bishop John Fisher did. So they're originally in Latin and there are 17 of those. Um, and then the, the last, uh, then there's a prayer for the king, which is historically very significant. And that's one of the things that I published on. And then the last prayer is a prayer for men to say going into battle. Um, so that's the, that's what the, the, um, that's what the contents are of that particular book.
0: And then can you tell me about the backdrop into which this was published? Because that's significant, right?
1: Yeah. So, um, I mean, so Susan, I'm um, sorry, I just should mention Susan James is the first person who, who argued that this book was translated by Catherine Parr. And she did a great job of outlining all of the verbal echoes. She also pointed out that there's some book bells where you can see that Captain Park ordered psalm prayers on May, of a date that we assume to be 1544, and that she was praised in print by other people for having produced godly psalms and meditations with her own pen, right? So I think we can constantly assert, um, and everyone sort of then has agreed with Susan James on that point. Um, so the context, but, but so people had always sort of said that certainly the last two Psalms were, uh, the two prayers clearly alluded to the war that was going. on. Um, but what I found when I started looking at this, I was like, well, if there's a war going on and Captain Parr is very busy, right? So, you know, what is this book about? And it was so frequently published. And I, I just became very interested in the context. So the context of the wartime context um, three weeks after Parr married Henry, he declared war um, against the French, and then six months later, he also de- renewed the war against the Scottish. The treaty whereby Edward the was supposed to marry Mary of Scots fell apart, and so Henry declared war. Or the Rough oh. Wooing, and that's, that's um, yeah, okay, yeah. So you know, it's a wartime context. Um, Henry have made an alliance then with the Holy Roman Emperor to make war against the Scottish, the French, and the Turk. Um, So, you know, there's a lot of negotiating that's going on at this period between the Holy Roman Emperor and Henry about what the nature of their alliance is going to be, how they're going to attack. There's all this horse trading, like how many cavalry is each person going to contribute. There's all this, um, you know, bartering, kind of. And we know from their calendar of state papers, Spain, that Parr was, of course, um, very active in being hosting, right? There were all these envoys coming back and forth. And so there there are letters that talk about how she was hosting and she was so gracious and she would send her greetings to the Holy Roman Emperor, et cetera. Then then I started, so I sort of became very interested in this wartime context. And then if you actually look at the content of the Psalms very carefully. You realize that they're perfectly designed for a wartime context. So the first four psalms are asking God for forgiveness. So they're psalms of repentance. The next group of psalms ask for wisdom. Then the next psalms ask God to destroy your enemy, right? And there are there are like six of these, or even more than six. I can't remember. The, there are maybe eight of them. Um, you know, really invoking God to like come down and smash his enemies and burn them to shreds and destroy the rebels. And and then the last Psalms are sort of preemptively thanking God for having destroyed your enemy. So once you sort of have it really look at the content of the Psalms in great detail and then put it in the context, it becomes, I became convinced that the best way to talk about this book is a piece of a wartime propaganda. So. You know, and also just to understand that, I mean, in the early modern period, it was widely understood that to win a war, you needed to have a good military, but you also needed to have God on your side. And pray to God for repentance and help was part of any monarchs, any country's sort of wartime strategy. So there are other texts that I cite in my scholarship about other people talking about, there's a guy called Thomas Beacon, and he's writing about the contemporary world. And he's like, we need to be saying prayers at all of the services, asking God for forgiveness and helping us win the war, right? And so when you you see it in that context, it becomes pretty clear that Henry knows that he needs to do this. And in fact, at the very same time, he asks Thomas Cranmer, or he allows Thomas Cranmer to produce an English version of the litany. And the litany was a prayer used also in wartime to ask God to help you win the war. So Henry sort of Brian is doing this in the public sphere. And then Catherine Carr is issuing a book that Henry subjects are supposed to use to, you know, to to pray that God will help with Henry win the war.
0: And I want hi Mary, by the way, who just popped in. <laughs> and I want to um ask also about like, yeah, how this would have been used. This was designed for people, for individuals to pray themselves, right? Like is, is that. Yeah this have
1: been distributed how would this have gotten to people yeah so that's a that's a great I mean it's always it's always so uh interesting to try to imagine how certain books were used right so the book was printed by Thomas Bertlett, and Kimberly Coles has pointed out that you know he's the king's printer and anything printed by him is sort of you know that the king wants you to take this seriously being issued by the crown Right, so again, it's interesting to think about part of doing the labor behind this, but it's it's part of her labor as part of the crown. Right? Right. Um, so it would have been sold at Thomas Bertlett's bookstore, which it was in Fleet Street, I think. And so people would have been encouraged to you know to purchase it. It would have been for sale. Uh, people who slept through it would have seen it was irrelevant to a wartime context, and it was very popular. I mean, uh, both Susan James and Triplett point out that it was it was a bestseller, right? So. Now, I think it's sort of in its first printing, obviously, the war is the immediate context, but I think it's a kind of book. And actually, when it was originally written by by Fisher, the enemies could be spiritual enemies, right? So, even once the war is over, it's possible to continue to use this book in a more allegorical way, right? So, they can be enemies of just spiritual. And obviously, in 1544, there are real enemies that you want God to destroy. Um, so that's one way that it would have been read, right? Now those people reading it who just bought it may not have known that Par was the translator, right? Unless you sort of had connections at court. Um, but like recently, they found a copy of the Psalms and Prayers again in a samovar, three books that were they were found in a, they were found in an archive in Faversham, Fa, But it's clear that they were found in the 19th century, stuffed up some chimney, and so like. But the book made it all over the place, right? And it, it is it is an Edwardian copy of this book. So um so that's one way that people read it. But then like my most recent work research talks about the gift copies of the book. Yeah. And so that would have been a really different readership, right? So Parr and Henry make these deluxe, gorgeous copies. They obviously give them to select people probably involved at the war. But those people are also expected to use it, right? I mean, these are prayer books and i think the the goal would be to have people use it every day to pray for henry or you know regularly
0: yeah now i have a question about bishop fisher had originally written these and the politics behind choosing bishop fisher since henry also executed bishop fisher how (laughs) what was how was that decided on
1: yeah so great question and and you know we can just hypothesize about that but um i mean i sort of you know so so a couple of people so susan james the first person to sort of argue that this was part suggests that um so pars almoner was a man called george day and he had been a uh, fisher's chaplain mm-hmm. so she first suggests that day may have been very mm-hmm. influential it's also clear, though, that Henry must have approved this, right? Like, there's no way Catherine Parr on her own sides translate a work by Fisher, right? <laughs> um, right? So there must have been a sense that the book was sufficiently valuable, right? That, that it offered these really valuable prayers, that it was worth republishing this, even though it had been written by Fisher. Now, of course, Fisher's name is removed from the title page. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, you know, I also I flung in at one point uh, an idea that it's um it's possible that that this may have also that Henry may have also seen maybe as a side benefit that this might have pleased the Holy Roman Emperor Charles V because he was the nephew of Captain of Aragon and of course had been a supporter of Fisher he would have been very sympathetic to Fisher right so Fisher refuses to take the oath of the supremacy. Um, he refuses to accept Henry's divorce from Catherine of Aragon. So of course, Charles V would think of Fisher as a martyr, right? So right. there may have been another benefit for Henry is that, you know, this is something that Charles V would probably approve of, right? The translation of this book. But, but it,
0: it, is, it is a really odd choice. Isn't it? Well, I was also going to ask, is there any sense, I mean, it's crazy because it's out of character but that this was Henry's way of like apologizing for having killed Bishop Fisher who had been some important grandmother and I
1: don't think he would ever apologize but I think that he would maybe maybe even enjoy stripping the name off of Fisher's book and then publishing it in ways that benefited itself
0: (laughs) yeah so then you also talk about um the the way henry portrayed himself throughout his reign as king david and um and that evident in in a little bit uh, with the psalms i was also thinking because david wrote the psalms originally is is, what's the connection with portraying himself as david and then having this this book of, of psalms that i know are the collage but how you is there any connection
1: yeah so because i mean this is a little abstract but I do think that the psalm text can be kind of read in two ways. So one way is that for individual readers, because there's an I, right? This is a devotional text. So it's I think, you know, it's the David's I, but there's an I. It's a first person. All of the verses in the Psalms and Prayers are first person. So readers are invited to take up those verses, right? So readers will read it and, and be thinking, I this, I'm sorry. God, please help me destroy my enemies. But and that's totally normal. David's Psalms were understood to apply to every Christian. So the I in the Psalms it was a cultural norm that every Christian could say the I and everyone can be like David. But kings were also like David sort of in a special way, right? Because, and Henry was really keen on David because he was both king and head priest. And so he was both the head of the, sort of religious realm and the secular realm, which in the wake of the supremacy is ideal. And so Henry depicts himself as a David in many places. So some of your listeners may be familiar with the the title page of the great Bible, which has Henry giving out the Bible to the secular and the religious sphere. But in the top corner, there's a David kneeling down praying and it has Henry's face on it. So Henry is showing himself to be like David. Um he, David, uh, sorry, Henry also had a very famous Psalter, which has been digitized and people can look at it on the British Library website. So it's a Psalter that he had, but there are these um, illumination and in them, uh, David is depicted also like in one place with Henry's face. So there's an image of David fighting Goliath and the David is, has Henry's face, right? So... So, so my point is that also when people, people, you know, this, so the Psalter is being produced by the crown. And I think you can also read the Psalms as, as Henry. This is also Henry, because Henry is David, right? And so Henry is showing his people that he's going to use these Psalms too. And so he's an exemplary king because Kings were supposed to repent and ask God to help them in the war, just like people were, and so there is a way in which I think you can read these songs as also you know Henry being David in a sort of a public in a in a public way.
0: does that answer your question? No, it does. it does. it absolutely does um, and then i I guess I want to get on to these marginalia um you initially had written about Catherine Parr and her marginalia and, and her as a book reader um, and, and the notes that she would take. Tell me a little bit about, about what you found with that.
1: Yeah, so as I mentioned before, there's a book at Sudley Castle where she's written me, Eight maxims, right? And so a good way to think of those is sort of do's and don'ts, right? So things that she wants to do and things that she wants to avoid. So the verses are also taken from the Bible and the book of Ecclesiasticus, which was understood to have been written by Solomon. And Solomon was a king that David also, uh, sorry, that Henry also modeled himself on King Solomon, who rebuilt the temple and was very wise. And so that's a, you know, Solomon is a sort of a go-to for Henry, also. Um, but so, you know, part of it, they're interesting because they're very interested in ours. Maxims are quite interested in sort of living a godly life. So she's showing, she's sort of performing to herself or to other people, or she's thinking very carefully about her role as consort and the sort of high standards that uh, exist for her behavior. And so, you know, so she has, one of them says, delight not thou in the multitude of ungodly and have no pleasure in them for they fear not. So, you know, she's saying, She's reminding herself she has to hang out with the good people,
0: right? And avoid
1: the <laughs> evil people at court. Are uh, there some that seem really relevant to court? So there's one: um, "Be not carried away with every wind, and walk not in every path." For so doth the sinner that hath a double tongue. Right. So worry there about gossip, about um, hypocrisy, two facedness, making sure that you you know you're not blown about in the wind that you're serious and you know you walk in the right path. Um, you know, she also has one about not trusting in riches, right? Because they're ephemeral. So it's just interesting. She's she's um thinking carefully about what is required of her as a queen and she's writing sort of do's and don'ts for herself in a book. Yeah. To remind herself.
0: It's almost like like New Year's resolutions or just like Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly very interesting um I want to also that reminded me that I I haven't asked you yet about the prayer for the king which was actually on my list here to ask before we started talking about marginalia but that is um as you were talking I just remembered I wanted to ask you about the the prayer for the king which has been included in the book of common prayer is still part of the book of common prayer and Catherine Parr wrote it and you I, I mean that it it's kind of extraordinary that this piece written by a woman was then included later in the book of yeah. and still is used to pray for the monarch, um, was used to pray for Queen Elizabeth II. Can you what can you tell me about this prayer that she wrote for the king?
1: Yeah, so again, this is a it's a translation, but it's <clears throat> so there was a there was a Latin version on um, the this original source of the prayer, and it took me over a year to to the but the original, course, is a prayer by Georg Witzel for the Holy Roman Emperor. Then, and it's a, a, a Latin prayer. It was then shortened in 1544 in Latin to be a prayer for Henry. We don't know who did that. It may have been Parr. It may have been someone else. But then Parr definitely translated it into English. And she made some really fascinating sort of adjustments. So... In the Latin, in a couple of places, in one place, for example, it asks, um, uh, for sweetness, um, and, you know, Par changes that, um, sorry, I'll just move back line for you. There's one place in the original Latin where the prayer asks Christ to bless Henry with the blessings of thy sweetness, and she gets rid of the sweetness and says that, uh, and do him plentifully with heavenly gifts she also sort of increases his you know the original sort of says um you know bestow on him length of days and she asks her grant him in health and wealth long to live so she's focused a little bit more on his health which is not surprising um anyway she just sort of like amplifies things she makes henry sound a little more ferocious than than the latin original so so it's, it's wonderful, right? We can think of her there as being involved in, like you said sure. earlier, Henry's image-making, right? So every word matters. Mm-hmm. And it's clear that probably in consultation with Henry, Catherine made a couple of changes as she went along to make the prayer like exactly what Henry wanted at that exact moment from his subjects who are praying for him. Um, and then it's, it's clear that the prayer... Um, remained popular. So it was reprinted every time the Psalms and prayers were reprinted. Parr also included this prayer in her second prayer book at the end. So she reprints this prayer for the king. It was still used under Edward. So once Henry died, the Psalms and prayers continues to be printed under Edward. It's just switched to say Edward. Um, and then what's so fascinating is that uh, when Elizabeth comes into power, Uh, In uh, 1558, there's a sort of a six-month window before the Catholic liturgy can be repealed and the Book of Common Prayer put back into, made mandatory again, right? There's this sort of thing happened under Mary, right? There's this sort of window where it's clear that the monarch is going to change religions, but it just takes a while for the legislation to catch up with this. But there was one place where Elizabeth had a kind of an extraordinary degree of agency over liturgical matters, and that was in her chapel royal, right? So in her chapel, uh, the dean is under her authority rather than under the authority of the bishop. And so there's, and other people have written about this before. And there's other stuff that goes on in Elizabeth's chapel that might not exactly equal yet, right? Oh, and super. so... One of the first things that she does, and this is something that hadn't really been remarked on very much yet, is that she has the English litany said again in her, just in her chapel, even though the Latin liturgy is what has to be used everywhere else, but just the litany in English. And if you look at the text of the litany though, what's astounding is that part prayer for the king has been inserted into that litany, but now it's the prayer for the queen. And it's been edited a little bit. And I argue that, you know, maybe Elizabeth edited it, right? It's definitely edited in ways that she would have liked. Um, And so, again, in terms of thinking about sort of Elizabeth's formation, you know, lots of people are interested in, you know, the sort of different people who influenced Elizabeth. And there's been a a recent book about, about, Anne Boleyn and her influence on Elizabeth, which is excellent. Um, but another thing I think we can talk about is Parr's influence on Elizabeth. And the fact that, you know, Elizabeth goes out of her way to institute a new prayer for people to say for her. Um, and the prayer she chooses is the prayer that Parr had written for her father, right? Yeah. So Clearly, this prayer had a big impact on her, and she wanted it to be the one used for herself. And so it's introduced in the Chapel Royal. But then when the Book of Common Prayer is finally printed in June, it's also in there, right? So, so in other words, she was using this new litany with Carr's Prayer, sort of six months ahead of everyone else. And then it becomes legal later after the um, English Civil War, and when the, Charles II was you know, restored, when the monarchy was restored, that prayer was moved from the litany to be said twice a day instead of occasionally. So it became part of morning prayer and evening prayer. Interesting. So yeah, so her legacy, I mean, you know, the fact that Haru produced this prayer through translation, but she made lots of edits and stuff. And then Elizabeth probably edited it also, but to have this prayer that was really like, the shaped edited by these
0: two queens is that's still used today is is amazing, yeah, and um something else that you we you kind of touched on it, but talking about Bishop Fisher publishing that work as a nod to the emperor, uh Georg Witzel, who wrote that prayer, he was a Catholic right or he had been a Catholic, then a Protestant, then back to being a Catholic, so could yeah. that originally have been like another nod to the emperor um
1: Yeah. Yeah. I definitely think so. Yeah. I think. And also, I mean, if you, yeah, so it's definitely sort of a gesture and homage. And also one of the things I think it does is it means that the people in the Holy Roman Empire and the people in England are sort of sharing this prayer for their rulers, right? That there's a, there's a kind of a shared devotional energy there, which I think would have been important.
0: Yeah so beautiful because i mean it's just like this little microcosm in this age of these religious wars and and people tearing each other apart literally that you have this little piece of um people figuring out a way to get along i suppose yeah yeah yeah
1: and and if the um if the prayer for the king had a long legacy the other thing i know that you said you'd interviewed damon skinner before and another way in which this you know, psalms or prayers sort of also lived on afterwards is that um, uh, one of the psalms number nine, which is against enemies, uh, David Skinner discovered that actually the words of that were used along with a setting that Thomas Tallis had written. So previously it had been a Latin hymn, but the same music was used. And then this you know, and used it as a setting for Captain Parr's ninth song. Um, and he hypothesizes that this was probably, you know, performed in a grand ceremony, sort of around the time that the second edition of this of this book was published, which makes a lot of sense. It was right at the beginning of the war. It was during there was there were three days before ascension where there were lots of rituals that would have involved the war. And he he hypothesizes that it was probably. You know performed in this in this grand thing and, and this is a piece of music that you know people still listen to um, yeah. that even though i I guess maybe the English version of it dropped down in use, but the music continued has continued to be played forever and then recently he did a recording ours Har yeah. version and it just makes us realize how important she was to the war effort right that she made people uh, always knew that once henry left and that she was the regent that she played obviously a really significant role as regent while he was away and you know she wrote letters explaining to him about how she was dealing with different logistical issues about the war like sending over cannon and mustering men and you know she was she had half the privy council with her but what this book shows us is that she was involved in the war before henry left in a really Central and important way, and and to me, it sort of transformed really the way I think about Parr, um, and Henry's attitude towards Parr.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's a, that's really amazing, and I love all this new research on her just in the last you know ten years or so. Because when I first started reading about Henry the Eighth and his wives, it was Catherine Parr was the nursemaid who took care yeah. of him at the end, yeah. and um, so that's such a kind of i think victorian like invention of her. and and she's just so much more she wasn't even that right and um and it's so interesting to see all of this new stuff come out about the role that she played and she was like a master pr person with with this it seems yeah Um, i mean
1: yeah one one of the things that's so
0: interesting actually is you know so so the
1: prayer for the king people had often just sort of assumed that she had written it. And the same thing with the prayer for men to say going into battle. But one of the things that, that I, I sort of discovered in the course of my research is that they're actually both translation, which makes them more interesting because then you can see that it's like, you sort of say, well, why Georg Witzel? And then you sort of, once you realize it's Witzel's prayer, it becomes more interesting kind of because then it's part of this negotiation, it's part of this diplomacy. I mean, David Mitzel was actually at one of the uh, meetings in Europe where they, where the emperor got permission from the other Protestants to make the alliance with Henry. So he, was, they, Witzel was there. And I can't help but thinking maybe that's how they got his prayer book, right, back yeah. to England, was it was somehow came back from that. And so then Parr was responding to the sort of international diplomacy in a way that You know, so her prayers are both about England, but they're also about England's relationship with the the ally. And and sometimes when you find that something's a translation, sometimes people say, oh, that's kind of disappointing because it means that the person didn't write it themselves. But for me, it was the opposite. Realizing that both of those prayers were translations actually made them way more interesting. It, It just opened up new avenues and provided new insights about Carr and what she was
0: doing and what Henry was doing. Sure, sure. All right. Well, look, I want to be mindful of your time, and I want to make sure we talk about um, about this new research because that's what I initially wrote to you. So Henry VIII's marginalia in this prayer book that had been a gift from Catherine, and and how did you discover it, and what does it tell us about Henry in his final couple of years?
1: Yeah. So I I. I learned actually from some of the footnotes, Janelle Mueller has produced this sort of scholarly edition of all of Catherine Parr's works and letters. And I highly recommend it to anyone who's interested in learning more about Parr's writing. Um, And she had a couple in her edition as part of her commentary on the songs of prayer. She pointed out that she had seen um, some gift copies, that there were gift copies but she didn't describe them in great detail, but I had learned from them that there was a painted coat of arm. So I was just, I was interested. And so I tried to locate the gift copies, not thinking that I would write very much about them. But then when I learned that there was one in the Wormsley Library, so I saw the one, um, yeah. So I learned that there was one at the Wormsley Library and I asked if I could see it. And this was one that Janelle Mueller had not seen. And, um, I mostly just kind of I said I'd be there for about 15 minutes. I just really wanted to look at this coat of arms. I was interested just to see the quality of the book and it's gorgeous. It's printed on vellum, it's hand illuminated. The coat of arms of Henry is just stunning. Um, but then I thought, well, I should look at every page before I leave, right? I'm all this way, I should really look at every page. and. I was about 60 pages in or something and I saw a little manicule, a little hand written in the margin. And some of your viewers and listeners may not know this, but in the early modern period, lots of readers wrote uh, like what we would call post-it notes or like the way that they highlighted passages. Sometimes they did stars, sometimes they did brackets but a very common marking was to draw a little hand so it's an index finger sometimes you know an index finger with the shape of the hand sometimes they have thumbs sometimes they don't have thumbs sometimes they even have five fingers it's just a bit weird um, often they have these elaborate cuffs if you just google uh, manicule 16th century manicule you'll see that there are just hundreds of these beautiful hands. And people wrote them to emphasize passages, like, this is important. I wanna come back to this, this passage speaks to me. Um, and yeah, so there was a manicule. And then a couple of pages later, there was another manicule. Now these are very faint graphite. So they're quite hard to see. But uh, in total, I found uh, 14. And uh, manicules, and then this other marking called the truck oil, which is sort of three dots with a bit of a squiggle. Um, another scholar has called them polls before. Um yeah,
0: so I was completely surprised and amazed. Um now one of the things you recognize them was Henry or let me just see you recognize that they were Henry I because of distinctive markings.
1: Yeah. So I had previously like that week I was looking at Henry's manicules in a different book. Gosh. And so as soon as I saw these, I'm like, it really look like Henry's, but anyway, so you know, but I, I hadn't really been paying that much attention to Henry's manicules, the shape of them. I was more interested in this other research so of exactly what passages he was marking. Anyway, so then I just realized I needed to do a really deep study. And, I, you know, there are four sort of distinctive features about them that, especially the cuff. So there's a, a cuff on the manicules in the Wormsley Library book that matches very closely to the cuff that Henry drew on all of his manicules and that are very distinctive and the shape of the hand is very distinctive i measured the size the angle that he puts them on and the and the pages are identical in both books though on on one side of the page it all points down at 30 degrees on the other page other side of the book points up at 40 degrees and it's identical mm-hmm. yeah
0: how oh, funny so what what do these notes that he was making like how how can we how do they help us understand him better yeah, the well, I think that you know it's hard to know exactly when he
1: made them, but obviously between fifteen forty four and then his death in January fifteen forty seven, they show us. I mean, they 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 clearly had certain things on his mind, right? They're not uh, widely varied, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's also sort of interesting to look at the passages that he didn't annotate versus the passages that he did annotate. So the, the annotations are clustered in three different psalms. So Psalm 4, which is about repentance, there are two manicules, and they're both about physical suffering. He's anxious that he, God is punishing him with weakness. He's, he complains that he feels feeble and faint, that his flesh is not made of brass. Um, and that he's being consumed and he's pining away, right? So he's, and we know from his biography that he was suffering enormously from this um, uh, ulcer. And so we can see here. So, I mean, it's sort of interesting because in public, we know that Henry did not really acknowledge his physical illness. So right. there's a letter from the imperial ambassador where he talked about how no one wants Henry to go to the war, that he has the worst legs in the world, but that no one dares to tell him. That. So in public, no one talks about it. But I mean, one of the things I think is interesting is that you can, I argue in the article, that he's sort of confronting some ugly truth here, right? So he's, Expressing his anxiety, his dismay that God is punishing him for his sins by sending him this horrible illness and making him feeble and faint. Um, But at the same time, and this is how I sort of read this marginally in general, is that it simultaneously registers his anxiety, but it also, he's showing that he's also doing the right thing given the terrible situation that he's in, which is that he's turning to God and for him so he's confronting and confessing his weakness but at the same time he's showing that he's exemplary and he's deserving maybe for god to heal him because he's doing the he's doing what you're supposed to
0: do situation
1: the other set of manicules or markings deal with wisdom which i think is interesting so he's worried and he's sick but he's also they they a lot of the, the rest of the markings are all about beside passages where the speaker is worried that he's ignorant because of his sinfulness and that he's been doing the he's been walking in the wrong path. And the speaker is asking God to purify him, to send wisdom so that the speaker will do things that make God Right. So there's a concern there that sinfulness has made him ignorant and wayward. it's about wandering in the wild past and and asking God, I'll just, I can read one out, you know, teach me, O Lord, lest my ignorance increase and my sins wax more and more. Um, Let thy spirit teach me the things that be pleasant unto thee, that I may be led into the straight way, out of error, where I have wandered over wrong. Mm, mm-hmm. So really interesting, right? He's worrying that he's on the wrong path, that he's made mistakes, that he hasn't been wise enough. But you know, at the same time, he also has a bit of optimism. He said, like, let thy wisdom rule and guide my thoughts that they may always please thee."
0: Yeah. So despairing, but also hopeful. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Interesting. So interesting um i've i've taken up enough of your time here a lot of your time i i appreciate you you know sharing all of this mary i wanted to ask you did you have any um if you have any questions you can um unmute yourself if you want to ask micheline um but if not mary thanks for coming mary yeah yeah mary's a, a big a big supporter and uh she's she's always around doing stuff with us which is cool so it was nice to see you mary thank you for being here um and if you don't have any questions then we will i will just thank you micheline for your Uh research yeah and uh oh and mary says chat here and says thanks for the wonderful talk thank you for being here Uh um yeah this was wonderful i so appreciate you sharing your research and being so generous with your time um where can people find your is there any place where people can find I know you're published in all the scholarly places is there a, a place where people who are just general listeners can can find out more about all of this stuff you're doing well I haven't so I teach
1: at the College of the Humanities at Carleton University in Ottawa so people can always check my web page and I also tweet a lot on at white micheline and I mostly retweet stuff about the Renaissance. I tweet about Catherine Parr and the Duchess of Sempec and Queen Elizabeth and Mary Tudor. Mostly about religious stuff, since that's what I work
0: with. Yeah. Wonderful. So great. Thank you so much.